Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Our sermon text is Luke 1, 67 through 79, the song of Zechariah, but I'm going to sing, I'm going to, I'm not going to sing, I'm not going to sing for you. <laughs> you don't want that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 57 through 80 to give us the context. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you uh, that we can come uh, to you and in your presence laugh and um, enjoy your mercy and rest in your grace, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that you have done great things for us. And our Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we turn to your word. We pray that you would... Uh, help us to read and understand and grow uh, more uh, deeply in our, in our knowledge of our Savior Jesus and help us to rest more fully in him. And I pray that that knowledge and that rest would lead to singing, would lead to rejoicing in what you have done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, despite me not singing to you right now, uh, I do sing a lot mostly when no one is around. 
except my family, much to their consternation. And there is a song for every occasion. Uh, There are happy songs and sad songs, songs that make you depressed and songs that pick you up. Love songs and breakup songs, victory songs, celebration songs, redemption songs, and funeral songs. There are all kinds of songs, but not mundane songs. I mean, there are frivolous songs, and there are silly songs with Larry, uh, songs about nothing in particular, but the mere act of singing brings you out of the mundane. Uh, Singing is one of those great evidences of the human spirit, the soul. When people sing, they seem to be lifted out of the ordinary and into something transcendent. Uh, Now, it it may be a a kind of counterfeit transcendence. Uh, That's a conversation for another day. Uh, But music itself, to me, seems transcendent. Uh, How much more is that true when adversity has been overcome, uh, victory is secured, redemption has taken place, and now it's time to celebrate? Victory songs in particular, uh, songs of triumph and overcoming, are a part of what it means to be human. Uh, I read somewhere one of the most recognizable rock songs is the Queen ballad, We Are the Champions. Songs of triumph grip us. And they reflect something of the character of God, uh, who we are told after he saves his people, according to Zephaniah 3.17, exalts over them with loud singing. We all want something to sing about. And when great things happen, there is something within us that just can't not sing. Now, maybe you're not a singer, not even in the shower, Uh, Maybe you don't listen to music or even enjoy music as much as some. That's okay. But music is something in every culture, every time, every place that bursts forth in joy when the odds have been overcome, the victory won, and the prize secured. Right? We shout with triumph and we sing with exaltation. It's no wonder then that the scriptures are full of songs. The first song is in Genesis chapter 2. When God creates woman, man responds in song, the first love song. Uh, There is a song when Israel crosses the Red Sea and gains victory over Egypt and freedom from slavery. There are 150 songs in the book of Psalms, the longest book of the Bible. There is the song of songs, an eight-chapter love song in the middle of Scripture. There are songs at the birth of Christ, the song of Mary, the song of Zechariah, the song of the angels, and there are songs in the book of Revelation, new songs, songs sung in heaven, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Scripture exhorts us to sing a new song, a new song because God has done a new work. That's what a new song is in Scripture. When God does something new, God's people sing about it. This morning, we begin a four-week Advent series on the songs of Christmas, not the songs of Rudolph and Santa and Frosty, but the songs of Zechariah and Mary and the angels and, of course, the Messiah. Uh, we begin with Zechariah's song in Luke 1, 67 to 79, and here's what we're going to see. Uh, Jesus, as the climax of Israel's story, brings freedom and joy to those who receive him through repentance and faith. So we have an event and kind of three applications. Uh, Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story. That's the event. And so prepare your heart, sing of God's grace, and serve him without fear.
Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story. Zechariah was an old man. We were introduced to him uh, back in Luke 1, verses 5 and 6, where we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, in a culture that emphasized the blessing of children, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth had none. And you can imagine what lifelong barrenness would have meant in that culture. In fact, Elizabeth at one point talks about, uh, or uh, yeah, Elizabeth earlier in uh, Luke 1 talks about her reproach. Uh, her reproach. Uh, there would have been sadness and ridicule, gossip and shame. And he was a priest after all. I mean, you would think God would have given him a child, but maybe they didn't deserve it, people might have thought. Maybe they had done something wrong. Maybe God was punishing them so the gossip might have gone. And one day, Zechariah's mundane sadness is shattered. Zechariah was a priest, and this day, Zechariah was chosen by lot, by chance. Of course, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So Zechariah is chosen by lot to enter the holy place, to burn incense on the golden altar. The incense represented the prayers of God's people, ascending as a pleasing aroma to God's throne. This was perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime experience for Zechariah, uh, but things were about to get crazy. Zechariah goes into the holy place to burn incense, and there on the right side of the altar appears an angel. Zechariah is scared out of his wits, as any sane person would be when confronted by an angelic being. But the angel tells him not to be afraid, that his prayer has been heard. And you might wonder, what prayer? Uh, here he is, a, a priest of Israel, offering up the prayers of God's people, was it Zechariah's corporate prayer for the deliverance of his people Israel? Or was it his personal lifelong prayer for a child? Either way, it was not the prayer of a moment or the prayer of a week, a year, or even a decade. It was the prayer of a lifetime. Right? Long and hard had Zechariah prayed. Many days and nights it seemed as if God had not heard or at least wasn't answering. And God's people had uh, long been under the rule of Rome. But before that, there was Greece and Persia and Babylon. God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt in the beginning and brought her to himself, but she rebelled against him, disobeyed his law, rejected his kind leadership, worshiped other gods and sought to become like the nations. And so God gave Israel over to the nations, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. They all had their way with Israel. She was harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Israel tasted the guilt and bitterness of her sin every day for generations. And just like you and just like me, she knew trouble and toil and hardship. And just like you and me, behind it all lay sin. It's guilt, it's punishment, it's power in her life. Well, Zechariah himself, as we already mentioned, had his own personal troubles as well. Old and childless, he and his wife could have felt that God had abandoned them, that he didn't care, or at least didn't care enough. Long and hard had he prayed, many days and nights, it seems as if God had not heard. But here comes an angel in verse 13 of Luke 1. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, 
will bear you a son. Well, you heard the rest of the story read earlier. Uh, Zechariah can't believe his ears. He doubts. Uh, the angel gives him a sign, which is also a, a mild rebuke, right? That he would be mute, silent, unable to speak until the child is born. Elizabeth, in her old age, conceived. Nine months go by, nine quiet months for Zechariah. The child is born. Zechariah's relatives want to name the child after him, but Elizabeth, in accordance with the word of the angel, said, no, call him John. Zechariah gets a, a small writing tablet and writes, his name is John. And in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Now, nine months had passed, no words, none. Uh, what would be the first thing you would say? Pass the peas? Uh, it's my turn at the remote? Or maybe, will you all speak a little quieter? I was mute, not deaf. But what does Zechariah say? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Here's what we need to notice. Zechariah's first words are, are not praising God for the gift of Zechariah's son, John. Zechariah's first words are praising God for the gift of God's son, Jesus. Zechariah's song, first and foremost, praises God because Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story. And first, notice that the coming of Christ is set squarely in Israel's story. Verse 68, uh, Zechariah says, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Who are his people? His people Israel. Zechariah just said that. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Where? In the house of his servant David. Verse 69. Zechariah sees the coming of Jesus as God coming to visit and redeem Israel. That is, Jesus comes to free Israel from her sin and its consequences. That's what redeem means here. Jesus comes as a descendant of King David to deliver Israel from her sin. And this shouldn't have been a surprise. Zechariah says this all happened, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Jesus comes, according to Zechariah, to fulfill God's promises to Abraham. The coming of Jesus is not only set in the context of Israel's story, it is to fulfill that story and to bring it to completion. Uh, Modern-day religious Jews believe that God has yet to fulfill his promises, that with respect to God's promises to Abraham and God's promises through the prophets, God has yet to come through. Sometimes Christians agree. They see the, the work of Jesus as somehow disconnected from God's promises of old. But that's not the way Zechariah saw it. Here comes Jesus, as God said in the prophets, to fulfill God's promises according to God's covenant and oath that he swore. See, the coming of Christ is set in the context of Israel's story as the climax of that story. And what did Israel need? Uh, she needed to be saved from her enemies, verse 71, and from the hand of those who hated her. She needed the mercy promised and the oath that God swore. Now remember, Israel's problem, uh, her sin and rebellion meant exile and slavery. She was oppressed by and made to obey many foreign nations because she had refused to obey God, the one who rules over the nations. It was her sin and guilt that brought slavery and oppression. What did she need? She needed promised mercy. Uh, God had said long ago, even through the mouth of Moses, that after Israel's rebellion and exile, that he would return, uh, 
that he would again show mercy, that he would forgive her sin, remove her guilt, and return her to the land. If guilt led to exile, the result of forgiveness would be return from exile. That was the oath given to Abraham after all, right? In, in Genesis 26.3, God says to Abraham's son, Isaac, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, for to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. Or in Jeremiah 11.5, God promises to confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. So God swore to give Abraham a land, but Israel's sin and guilt had lost them that land. So God's mercy would mean gaining the land once again. Now Israel was living in the land at this time in Luke 1, but they were ruled by Rome and they were not free. Now some people see uh, these promises of Israel being restored to the land as being fulfilled in 1948. Uh, when the modern-day political nation of Israel was proclaimed as its own sovereign nation-state. But like so many before them, they have missed what Zechariah saw. God had already fulfilled that promise. Uh, Jesus came as the horn of salvation in the house of David. He came as great King David's greater son. He came to bring mercy. How? Well, Jesus brought mercy by dying for sin. He came to be Israel's sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant who Isaiah said would be numbered with the transgressors and bear the sin of many. And Jesus bore the guilt of Israel that Israel wouldn't have to. Jesus, faithful Israelite, son of David, represented Israel on the cross, bearing her sin, clearing her debt. But that's not all. God did not leave Jesus dead in the grave. Jesus' enemies plotted against him, conspired against him, falsely accused him, beat and mocked him, finally put him to death. But God visited Jesus. God saved him from his enemies and from the hand of all who hated him. And Jesus rose from the dead. And having defeated the the great enemy of sin at the cross, Jesus triumphed over all his enemies in the resurrection. And Jesus ascended into heaven and sat down at the Father's right hand on God's throne. Now, at that point, Jesus tells us that in the Great Commission, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Jesus was given the land according to God's promise to Israel, not just the land of Canaan, but all heaven and earth now belong to the king of Israel. God has fulfilled the oath he swore to our father Abraham. He has given his descendant, Jesus, the earth. It's his. He owns it. It has been given to him. Now, I'm not sure how Zechariah understood all this or how much he knew, but he knew enough to say that with the coming of Jesus, God had visited and redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, saved us from our enemies, and fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Zechariah understood more more than many Christians do today. Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And all of God's promises have been fulfilled in him. The only question now is, who will share in his victory? Who will benefit from God's faithfulness to his oath to Abraham? Which brings us to our second point and our first application, prepare your heart. Zechariah had waited a long time to become a dad, but his first words after his son's birth were not, it's a boy, but blessed be the God of Israel. But Zechariah did have words for his newborn son. They begin in verse 76. 
and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What was John's role? Well, through Malachi, God had said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Isaiah said, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Right? John's role was to prepare the way for Christ, to go before the Lord and prepare his way. How did John go about this? Well, uh, Zechariah tells us, By giving knowledge of salvation to God's people in the forgiveness of their sins. That is to give the, the knowledge of salvation that consists in the forgiveness of sins. Well, how did John do that? Well, later on in, in Luke, in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, how is the way of the Lord prepared? By preparing people for Christ's coming. John calls people to repentance, helping them to see their need of the Savior. Zechariah knew his need. Uh, he felt Israel's oppression and slavery every day. He, he knew they were not living uh, the, the life that God had for them. He knew his own disappointments and hardships. And, and this is the, the key way of preparing for the Messiah and receiving him. This is how Jesus began his ministry, Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, the end of Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus summarizes the teaching of the Old Testament like this in Luke 24. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. And this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, repentance is a key way of preparing for the Messiah and receiving him. The question is, do you know your need? Do you know your need of the Savior? Do you feel the, the brokenness of this present age? Do you feel that this world is not what it should be? Do you feel the brokenness of your own heart? That your heart tends toward uh, addiction and slavery? Uh, perhaps not uh, of what we think of as addictive substances, but we are enslaved to the things of the present age, enamored with the gods of this age, the idols of our own making, the work of our hands. See, like Israel, we pursue life in the present, and God gives us over to the gods of the nations. And we wake up one morning enslaved to, to academics or accolades, to instant pleasure or instant gratification or instant applause or the old, old masters of money, sex, and power. John, Zechariah's son, came to call people to repentance, to prepare our hearts. Acknowledge the hold this world has on you. Acknowledge the love you have for this world rather than for the God who made the world, for created things rather than for the creator. This is how we prepare our hearts. We repent of sin to believe in the Savior. We own our sin to receive the Savior. We acknowledge our brokenness and our need to be ready to see his wholeness and all satisfying sufficiency. We cannot see Christ as the coming king in the line of David until we repent of seeking to be our own little kings in our own little lives. We cannot see Christ as the coming savior until we repent of trying to save ourselves through our righteousness and works. Repentance is, I think, the forgotten key to the Christian life and to Christian growth. 
And James put it like this in James 4, 6 through 10. He says, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The inroad into our hearts is made ready for Christ when we humble ourselves, repent of sin, and submit ourselves to God. And John the Baptist came to ready people for the climax of the story. Are you ready for the climax of the story? And if you struggle to know, well, I don't, I don't even know what I need to repent of. What sin do I have in my life? Okay, uh, ask God. Ask him to show you. Come seeking his wisdom, his light. And by that very act, you begin to humble yourself before him. Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story. Prepare your heart. Second, sing of God's grace. It's the point that would be easy to miss. Uh, Zechariah's words are not mere prose. And when he is gripped in heart by what God has done, he doesn't coldly recite God's faithfulness in a monotone voice. He sings. Uh, now, it's true uh, for Mary's song and Zechariah's song, even the angel's song, the text doesn't tell us that they sing. Uh, but what we find in Zechariah is uh, quotes from and allusions to the Psalms, Israel's song book, too numerous to mention. It's clear from the poetic style and the echo of the Psalms that Zechariah is singing. Why is he singing? His heart overflows with joy. Uh, Psalm 45 verse 1 says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That's what happens here with Zechariah. His heart overflows with joy in what God has done for Israel. And he opens his mouth and he sings. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks, or in this case, sings. Zechariah has something to sing about. God is on the move. God is working. God is fulfilling his promises, keeping his oath, being faithful to his covenant vows. Mercy is being shown. Enemies are being defeated. Sins are being forgiven. Freedom is being found. There is something worth singing about. Has the grace of God so gripped your heart that you want to sing about it? Now, we live in an age where music is primarily something you listen to, not something you create. Uh, that hasn't always been the case, of course. But even if so, it's worth right, finding music that celebrates the gospel that will stir your soul. Music where the content, the words, points you to Jesus and his work, and then sing along. Rejoice in God's work in the gospel. Of course, the scriptures exhort us not just to sing, but Ephesians 5.19 says, to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing in church, we don't just sing to God, though we do that. Uh, the, the rest of Ephesians 5.19 says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. But the first part says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing, you are addressing the people next to you. When we sing, we address one another in song. We are reminding one another of the gospel, exhorting one another to rejoice. That's why it's so important that the, that, that the instrumental music doesn't drown out the congregational voices. We need to hear one another sing in order to obey the command of Scripture to sing to one another. 
this singing, by the way, is actually a sign of the Spirit of Christ. Uh, notice here in Luke 1, 67, uh, we read, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, And then comes forth this song. Or even if we back up a verse in Ephesians, starting in Ephesians 5, 18, Ephesians 5, 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How? He goes on to say, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so pray for the Spirit to move in your heart and sing. Sing to one another. Rejoice in God's work. Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story. Prepare your heart. Sing of God's grace. Finally, serve him without fear. Uh, there is a trajectory to God's grace. It's going somewhere. There is a goal, a telos, an end. Uh, Zechariah sings about the, the horn of salvation raised up in the house of David in fulfillment of the prophets in accordance with the mercy promised to our fathers and the oath sworn to Abraham that we, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What is the goal of God's saving work in Christ here? That we would serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Verse 78 puts it like this, beginning mid-sentence, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, that, that, that is Christ's coming, right? The light of the world, the sunrise that visits us. Why? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Okay, why? To guide our feet into the way of peace, right? The goal of God's work is that we should serve him without fear, walking in the way of peace. Christian, if you have repented of your sin, and trusted in Christ, the fulfillment of God's oath to Abraham, if you have found mercy in his cross, the forgiveness of sins in God's tender mercy, if you have seen the light of the gospel of Jesus exposing your sin, but also illuminating God's grace, this is the goal, that you would serve him without fear. Why without fear? Well, because you no longer have anything to be afraid of. God has defeated our enemies in the cross. We no longer stand guilty before our Father. We don't have to uh, serve in terror, hoping that maybe God might possibly accept us. Christ has dealt with that in the cross. We are accepted by the Father. We can serve him without fear. Death itself has been defeated in the resurrection. According to Hebrews 2.15, Christ has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You don't need to be afraid. Why? And don't your enemies still have power? Sure. Can people harm you? Yes. Can your possessions be lost? Of course. Can sickness have its way with you? It's true. But Paul says, in all these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In light of the cross, we now know that nothing can separate us from God's love. And whatever the present age might throw at us, we know the resurrection is just around the corner. This is our hope. This is our, our victory song worth singing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the conclusion 
in 1 Corinthians 15, in light of death's defeat, in light of the resurrection to come, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Serve God without fear, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Look, I, I know what it means to serve God in fear, right? Uh, afraid that my work isn't good enough or afraid I'm going to fall short, afraid my sin will get the better of me, afraid my work will be fruitless, afraid of what other people will think. But Christ has conquered. Christ has delivered us from our enemies. Christ is even now at work by his spirit. His promise is his resurrection power will be at work so that your labor and my labor is not in vain. Trust him and rejoice in Christ's cross, in Christ's resurrection, and in our hope of resurrection on the last day when the last enemy death will be no more. Jesus has come as the climax of Israel's story. Prepare your heart, sing of God's grace, and serve him without fear. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that your gospel, the gospel of your Son, would cause us to rejoice now and always. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.